I thought it may be just um, appropriate, maybe at this time of the year, to uh, just step back, uh, maybe for a week here on 1 John, so that we might reflect on the, the season before us. Obviously, I trust we just celebrated, you celebrated a, a wonderful weekend, did we not, uh, for Thanksgiving. I trust your day was a time of uh, rejoicing around your family, around some great food, and most of all, rejoicing in the Savior's kindness that has been extended to us in the gospel. But I couldn't help but think that if you were to strip away all of, all of the earthly blessings and had absolutely nothing to your name, but you possessed a saving relationship with Christ, you would have everything, wouldn't you? I mean, there's no question that for some of you, this has been a hard week, and I know that personally. For many a time of Thanksgiving, but maybe some were beset by great trials, maybe the hardest week of your life, and yet the truth is, is that if you're in Christ this morning, you would really have everything. I mean, to know Christ and to know Him as Lord and Savior is simply enough to be forever grateful, is it not? I mean, think about that just for a second. Oh, the, the peace, the blessing, the joy, the full pardon, the full forgiveness. I mean, is there any greater earthly joy than that? And to help us reflect on that, I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn to that, maybe that familiar psalm in Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And so I thought maybe just for a moment, I knew people would be away, others would be visiting, that we would focus our time here on this wonderful, wonderful psalm of David. Now, as you're turning to Psalm 103, we know that David had written this psalm really towards the later end of his life because he was so aware in this psalm of his own sin. And when you look at Psalm 103, it is really just a wonderful hymn of praise. What's unique in this psalm is that there are no requests in this psalm. It is only praise. And I would submit to you that his words of praise are untouched by sorrow, untouched by suffering, untouched by sadness. For certainly David, as we well know, was acquainted, acquainted with sorrow, with suffering, and with sadness. But it's a wonderful hymn of praise. G. Campbell Morgan, the great expositor, said Psalm 103 was perhaps the most perfect psalm of pure praise to be found in the entire Bible. Now, what David is going to do in this psalm, in verses 1 through 5, we won't look at all of the psalm, but in 1 through 5, he is going to direct the individual to praise him. Then in verses 6 through 18, he is going to direct, I would say, the community to praise him. And then if you look down, and you can look at this later, in 19 through 22, David will direct the universe to praise him. 
So he begins with the individual, he goes to the nation or the community, and then he extends that blessing, if you will, to the universe in 19 through 22 of Psalm 103. Now our focus this morning before we begin and look and take partake of communion will just be the first part of this psalm, the exhortation for the individual to praise him. And so as you sit here, you sit with me corporately, absolutely. But if you look at this psalm here at this first section, it is an exhortation for you, for you individually. And as you come into this house of worship, I have no idea what your week has looked like. For some of you, it has been very, very difficult. For some of you, maybe the family situation maybe brought uh, some difficulty. Maybe some of you saw your own sin lived out before people. Others of you had a wonderful weekend. But the point here in Psalm 103, it isn't directed to you individually to praise the Lord. Let's look at this psalm in Psalm 103. Pick it up with me in verse 1. Here it is, a psalm of David. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. He begins here at verse 1 with that phrase that's so familiar, Bless the Lord. You might ask, what does that mean? Well, to bless the Lord is, is the ideal of expressing appreciation. It is expressing gratitude. It is the ideal of respecting the one who is being blessed. And whenever God is the object of that awe, we are to praise him. We are to bless him. In fact, to bless the Lord in many ways and other passages of Scripture is synonymous with praising the Lord. But here David begins and he says, bless the Lord. In fact, glance down at verse 20. You'll note that he ends the psalm with this kind of praise. He says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying his voice, the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So he begins and he opens this psalm with that phrase, bless the Lord. Now you'll note again, as you look down in verse 1, whom he blesses is the Lord. Whom he blesses is Yahweh. And whenever you see that title, to bless the Lord, we are to bless, if you will, or praise his character or to give him praise. And the one we're giving praise and adoration to is the Lord. Now you'll note again, look at the psalm, just a little work here in the background. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, the blessing comes from the soul. In other words, welling up out of the soul to God, and this is directed to you individually, is esteem. And here we're just reading with David. This is coming out of David's heart. Honor to God, praise to God, glory to God, goodness to God. And we're blessing him. In other words, David here is stirring himself to bless the Lord. So if you come in individually and you kind of come in and it's a stirring to you. David is, in in essence, we're capturing his heart, but he's stirring his own heart to bless the Lord. 
It's almost like he's in soliloquy, if you will, okay? In other words, he's holding personal communion on his self. And you almost get the idea so as to not become dull or to not lose joy or to not forget his blessings. He comes before the Lord. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. And he mentions that Hebrew term for soul. And it refers always to the individual's total being. In other words, whenever you look in in the Hebrew on soul, it refers, it's the ideal of the mind, the heart, the will. And so look what he says again in 103.1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And he says, all that is within me. In other words, with everything you have. With everything you are, you are commanded to bless the Lord with all that is within me. And I don't have the time, but you see that little phrase there, all that is within me. That word all is found nine times just in this psalm alone. In other words, it's calling for our total being. It's almost as though David would say, let others complain But we, even I, will bless the Lord. Let others bless themselves, but I will bless the Lord. Let others use their voices only, but I will bless the Lord from my soul, from my inmost being. Now look what he says there. He says at the end of verse 1, bless his holy name. Now God's name, you know this, signifies His nature. When you think of his name, it's to think of his attributes. And it would include all of his perfections. And here, David, it's almost as though as he's worshiping God, just praises God for his name is holy. And so he praises God because praise is the only proper response to his holy and awesome name. But look what he says in verse 2. He just he repeats it again. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. David here is just in earnest. And I think you say, well, he, he repeated, bless the Lord, O my soul. No, I think he, he repeats for emphasis, but he, he's talking to his own heart. And I think he does so because he had need again to remind his soul And I would submit that we have need again to bless the Lord. Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, anything less than that, I think, is shameful on on our parts. Now, look what he says to bless the Lord for. You see it at the end of verse 2. It says, forget none of his benefits. And and that word there, benefits, is, is the idea of forget none of his acts. Forget none of his works. It's the ideal of forget none of his doings. You are, as David is in soliloquy here, to forget none of his benefits toward you. Not one of them. I like how Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said, he said, memory is a very treacherous, treacherous about the best things. He said, it treasures up the refuse of the past and permits priceless treasures to lie neglected. 
He said, it is, a t- it is tenacious of grievances and holds benefits all too loosely. And how true that is. We are to bless the Lord and forget none of his benefits. In fact, one of the ways that we as a church, both corporately and certainly here individually, bless the Lord is to remember all of his benefits towards you. I mean, the flesh does it not treasures past sins and it holds loosely all of his benefits. So be careful. And maybe I would ask you, as you come to the Lord's table in a few moments, have you forgotten all that the Lord has done for you? And and David would say, forget none of them. You say, well, I, I hope I won't, but we would know that Israel did. Do you remember? You don't have to turn there. You can write it down in Deuteronomy 6, 2. Do you remember when Moses said, and I just take it as he commanded the nation, he's commanding us, in Deuteronomy 6, 2, he said, take care lest you, what? Forget the Lord. He told that to the nation. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Take care lest you forget. Have any of you forgotten his benefits this morning? Deuteronomy, it says in 8.11, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. There are a lot of people who forget, do they not? There are people I know who walk with Christ seemingly for years and then forget everything and walk from everything. And Moses would say to you, young people here this morning, take care lest you forget. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. Do you remember, Grace Church of the Valley, what the Persian king did? In the Old Testament, when he couldn't sleep to reward the man who saved his life, how quickly did he get up and reward that man? How about us this morning? Have you forgotten the Lord's goodness? And so here, the Lord, individually for you, has done a great work in your life. Shall you not remember to praise him? You say, well, what are those benefits? What are they? Forget none of his benefits. What are those? Look here in 3 through 5. It says, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. I mean, you see the benefits there. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, and he renews. And again, as you glance at this, both maybe today and this week, as you maybe go into your grace group, you'll note how personal it is. I mean, look what he says, where he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, who forgives all, and he says this, your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, 
who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things. It is so intensely personal. Again, I like what Spurgeon said. He said that he selects a few of the choicest pearls from the casket of divine love, threads them on a string of memory, and he hangs them about the neck of his creatures. You say, well, what are those benefits? Let me just move through them fairly quickly with you. In fact, I don't even want to put them in a, in a, in a package of points. So when I get to the phrase, you know that I'm on the next benefit. I don't want us to lose the substance of it as I touch on a few of these benefits that he's given to us. But the first one there is in verse 3, who forgives all your iniquities. The NASB, if you're holding it, says, or who, who forgives all your iniquities. One translation says, who pardons all your iniquities. Here's what David's doing. He's blessing the Lord. He's forgetting none of his benefits. And the first benefit he remembers is this, is that God graciously pardons or forgives every sin you ever will commit, even the sins in your future. I mean, it would be true that we have sinned more times than we can know. And the truth would be that if all of our sins of thought and speech and neglect uh, here were to be remembered, we'd be in big trouble, would we not? But in the Lord's kindness, it says that he pardons or he forgives all of our sins. I mean, what would happen to you, to me, if God wrote all your sins down? But what God graciously does, verse 3, is he forgives all your iniquities. And I think it's interesting, verse 3, he doesn't just use the word for sin. He uses a different word. We translate it in the ESV, iniquities. But it really what it's saying is that he forgives all your, frankly, perversities is what it means. He forgives, the idea is all your crookedness. He forgives the concept of that word there is in your twisted nature. And you know what God does? He forgives them all, all of it. In Christ, your sins. Listen, not just some of your sins, not just many of your sins, not just a lot of your sins, not just the little sins, not just the ones that you committed before Christ, he forgives all your, what? Iniquities. Listen, if you come into this house today, come with the psalmist, reason with him in your own heart. You say, well, Scott, I've had a tough year. I've lost this. I've had, listen, reason with him. Find your joy back in this, that all of your sins, every single one of them have been forgiven by God. In fact, no wonder the psalmist would say in Psalm 32, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is what? It's covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute what? Iniquity. If you're in Christ this morning, he has taken away your sin. He has covered your sin. I'm thinking of statements like this, and you don't have to turn with me, but in Jeremiah 31, 
in 34, in the promise of the new covenant, there God says, they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their, what? Iniquity. If you've been, if you are in Christ, then the promise of the new covenant is that God Almighty, the one who knows all, the one who's omniscient, the one who's omnipresent, has forgiven you all your sin. In fact, in that same principle of the new covenant, in Jeremiah 33, 8, it says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all their iniquities. Listen, Grace Church, if you're in Christ, he has forgiven you of every single sin that you committed, that you will commit, that in the future he sees you, if you will, in the perfect righteousness of Christ. No wonder, and can we say with the psalmist, oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. Do you remember what Micah the prophet said? Here's what Micah said in chapter 7, verse 18. He said, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not restrain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot Micah said, yes, he will cast all our sins into the depths of the what? Of the sea. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. I'm thinking of Isaiah in 38, 17. It's actually Hezekiah who said this. He said, it is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. For you, he says, have cast all my sins behind your what? back. You say, well, Scott, God doesn't have a back. I know that. You know that. He's speaking, is he not, in anthropomorphic language. He takes your sins almost as, as a metaphor, and he buries them into the deepest part of the sea. He takes all your sin, and he casts them behind God's back. It's just simply an expression for this, that forgiveness is a promise that God Almighty will never bring your sin back on you. Never. You may face consequences for it. We understand that. But he will never bring it up out of the depth of the sea. He will never bring it up from behind your back, up in your face. Satan will do that. But the psalmist is just saying, bless the Lord. You've cast, Isaiah, excuse me, Hezekiah says, all my sins behind your back. The prophet Isaiah said this in 43.25, God speaking, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And God says, I will not remember your, what? Sins. Now, we've talked a little bit about this. You say, but uh, he knows everything. So how does he not remember our sin? He chooses to live in that promise for you. Of course, God is omniscient, right? But what forgiveness is, is a promise of God, it's what it is, to never bring your sin back upon you. He says, that's what he says, I will not remember your sins. God Almighty is make, you say, but pastor, I confess this sin all the time. Well, do you you still live in that sin? No, but it haunts me. 
Well, it may haunt you, but it's not haunting God. He's never going to, you say, well, what brings that up? The flesh. What brings that up? Maybe self-righteousness. You say, well, what then brings that sin back up? It could be Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren who accuses you before God. How often? Day and night. But God Almighty, listen, when you confess your sin, he is going to put that sin behind your back. I'm thinking of Isaiah 44, 22. It, God says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Whoosh, just wipes them out. So if you're driving, I got up this morning and I was driving in that fog. I couldn't believe it. I thought it was like, um, I thought sirens would go off. But if it gets worse than that, call me, pray for me, okay? But Imagine that fog and your sin being like that fog. It's just heavy. And if you're in Christ, he takes your sin and wipes it out like a thick cloud, like a fog, like he just takes it away. He puts it behind his back. He buries it into the deepest part of the ocean. Look down here in the psalmist. He'll get to it in another section. But look at verse 103. You know this in verse 10. He does not deal with us, praise God according to our sins. Oh, mercy, thankful for that, are we not? Nor repay us according to our, what? Iniquities. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Aren't you thankful for that? So here the psalmist comes in and he says, bless the Lord. Don't forget none of his benefits. Let me ask you, children, young ones in here, junior hires, students, do you bless the Lord? Do you find yourself giving praise? You should, because I can tell you there's $288 million that took place at the box office for Twilight Breaking Dawn. They're not praising the Lord, but out of our hearts, right? You say, well, I've had a hard year. Listen, you may have had a hard year, but I promise you, if all your sins are forgiven, if all your sins are buried in the deepest part of the sea, if all your sins have been wiped out, if all your sins God promises to forgive no more, then we should be a people of praise, don't you think? Don't you just think out of our heart when we get out to the patio, we ought to be, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? How's your walk with Christ going? There ought to be a realness to what we're doing. There ought to be a joy in our day, a joy in our step that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Do you know how many people walk around in guilt all their life? Do you know how many people end up on psychologist couches because they don't understand this? Do you know how a lack of understanding forgiveness can wrap people up to the point where even the psalmist said that I was wasting away inside my body until he actually, at that point, confessed his sin, his known sin. Forgiveness is so important. You say, well, he does that, Scott. I understand that. He forgives all of our iniquities. How does he do that? I mean, how does he do that? And you know it well. How, how would he do that? On what basis does he do that? He does that through who? Jesus Christ, right? His life, his work, his death, and his resurrection. Think about it this way. I'm just touching on it today with you. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. 
But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to what? To fall on him by his stripes. It says there we are healed. I'm thinking, and we won't rehearse it in 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our what? Sins. It says of Jesus Christ in Galatians 1, 4, that he gave himself for our what? Sins. I'm thinking of Paul in Galatians 2.20. You know, for those of you who've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me. The life I live by faith, I live in the flesh in the Son of God who loved me and who, what? Delivered himself up for me. Listen, if you're in Christ and you're born again today, then all your sins have been forgiven. In fact, I would submit to you, to the degree that we understand this will be to the degree that you actually serve the Lord. Because people who are filled with this kind of understanding and who walk in the grace of that, I'm thinking of that woman in the gospel that the one who was forgiven much, she what? She loves much because she understands what the Lord had done. I'm thinking of here the work of Christ and Paul when he spoke to the church at Ephesus when he said, in him we have redemption through his, what? Blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. It's all through the work of Christ. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Boy, I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking, excuse me just for a second, thinking about all that stuff on Twilight and how demonic some of that is and the blood rituals that go on beyond the movie with young people across the nation and young people who cut themselves, and young people across the nation and the world who enter into ritualistic um, just Satanism and are drinking blood, it devalues the work of Jesus Christ truly done. Listen, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Colossians 2.13, when you were dead, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with Christ. And then Paul says this, having forgiven us all our, what? Sin. It's amazing. And then you begin to think, yeah, he did that for me. Yes, we're going to partake in a moment of the Lord's table. But it says then when we were, I'm thinking of Paul in Romans 6, we were helpless, we were ungodly, we were enemies. Christ, what did he do? He died for us. We who were lost, we who were helpless, we who were powerless, we who were rebellious, we who were ungodly sinners who were under the condemnation of God's wrath. He died for us. I mean, I just give you a little point of comparison. You think of a young man who's in love, okay? This is a young man. I, I talked to a young man in love <laughs> with his fiance every week on Skype. Skype's a great thing sometimes, huh? I mean, he, he's in New York. He's a football player. And his fiance's right there. And we just, 
I could just, it's, it's coming out through the computer. They love each other, you know? And, and it's precious to watch, and it's precious to watch what he would do for his wife and the gifts that he wants to lavish on his wife. And they're beyond measure because of his great love. And then I'm thinking biblically of Jacob, who served joyfully for his bride for seven years because of his dedication for her and because of his love for her. But listen, with God, he gives us the gift of his son to die for us when we are his, what? Enemies. It's amazing. I'm thinking of what we've just studied in 1 John. We know love by this, that he laid down what? His life for us. John will go on to say in chapter 4 that in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent us his son to be what? The propitiation of our sins. So here's the benefit. David says, listen, bless the Lord. Why? Who forgives all your iniquities. Look again at verse 3. It says here, who heals, secondly, I suppose, all your diseases. Who heals all your diseases. I think this is another expression of sin being put away with. But I think this verse has played an an important but unwarranted role in some systems of theology that stress what is called, maybe you've heard of this, the quote, the healing in the atonement, meaning that if we have been saved from sin by Christ, we have been healed or have the right to be healed of any physical affliction as well. But really, that's, that's bad theology because it simply is not true that those who have been forgiven for sin are spared, right? Or even have the right to be spared from all diseases. diseases. I mean, believers do get sick. We know that, obviously. And in many passages, it teach that God has purposes in that sickness. I, I think here the expression can mean Not only does he heal all your sins, but he heals your diseases in the sense that he could be referring to maybe a spiritual sickness. In other words, that even in coming to Christ, even in coming to Christ, you still have issues that we've walked through often with what the Lord did in redeeming us from our past and that the Lord not only forgives our sin, but he also heals those spiritual sicknesses that sometimes reside deep in the soul. And praise God for that, because have we not experienced some of that, where we come to greater charts in our walk with Christ, and we go deeper and deeper, and we know His truth and His person in a greater, grander way. And when He brings illumination into our character, which is why we're studying theology with our men's group, that the greater you understand the contours of God and his character, the greater you will be released from those things that hang on. But here David says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He says, and he says, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Look at verse four there. Who redeems your life from the pit. He's speaking there of that rich theological word, redemption. In fact, the word uh, was used of someone being wonderfully delivered. And sometimes you would see this in Scripture where they were wonderfully delivered from physical danger. Sometimes someone in the Scripture was delivered from the jaw of a lion or from the jaw of a bear. Sometimes it was used to be delivered from the sword of Goliath or from the javelin of Saul 
or even to be delivered from the Lord of the Philistines. But here, I think it's from sin itself. He just says to us, bless the Lord who redeemed your life from sin, who redeemed, I still think he's in that soliloquy, your life from the pit, who took you from eternal death who took you from the pit of destruction. In other words, what David is saying is that our God rescued you from God's wrath. And so Jesus Christ, by virtue of his death, ransomed you from the pit of destruction. Listen, there's no better truth than that, right? No better truth. And yet we have a world that will be drawn to the box office for breaking dawn. Listen, don't you think we ought to just be the most joyful people? Listen, if he didn't redeem you, if he didn't rescue you, if he didn't pull you out, where would you be? Where would you be? See, I'm thinking here, my mom's here. I'm so thankful for God's grace on my dad. You get to the whole side of his family. Hardly anyone knows the Lord. Some now have come to Christ in in the years, but almost anyone. You say, well, why would he pick my dad? Say he was a good guy. No, he he probably really wasn't a good guy. (laughs) I don't know. He probably wasn't, Mom, was he? I mean, he grew up down on the beach of Venice fighting people, fighting people. Although he would never tell you that until his brothers came around and told us what he was like. All I know is God reached down and rescued him. Pulled him out of the pit. Rescued him from a life of sin. From a life that would never understand the blessing of God. And then as he redeemed him, he redeemed my mom and then brought my family to Christ. But listen, where would you be without his grace? I'll tell you this, you wouldn't be in this house right now, would you? Have you ever just thought, there's a song that sometimes a guy sang at my home church growing up. It's, I think it goes, where would you be if it were not for grace? Do you know that song? And then it says, I'd be traveling down some road to nowhere. Listen, you may have had a hard week. You may have had your hardest week, but listen, Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Listen, he forgives your sins. He can heal even those things, those infirmities of soul that sometimes can cling to us. He'll heal that. He'll heal that eventually, certainly in the future. But here, he redeemed you. He pulled you out of the jaw of the lion. He pulled you out of the jaw of a bear. He pulled the sword, if you will, from the sword of, the, of Saul, the javelin. But listen, in a far greater way, he pulled you out of the pit of hell. He took you, a hell-bound sinner who was not pursuing God. You say, but Scott, I I started to pursue God, and then even that's his grace, right? You say, but I grew up in a Christian family. That's his grace. You say, I recognized my sin early on. That's his grace. Listen, he redeems you. I couldn't help but think, not to make lightly of it, as I was at the Fresno Bulldog game. See, I'm starting to get in the culture a little bit, okay? I went to that game, and there's some people there. It was a, it was a good game if you were a Fresno Bulldog, right? 
hard game if you were an Air Force cadet playing that game. But I saw them on TV last night, and they were just, well, I don't want to do it. They, they had this trophy, and they were just hoisting it, and they're all jumping around because by winning that game yesterday, that's a great thing, they won the Mountain West Conference. But maybe it'd be great if I came into Grace Church of the Valley and there was a group over here just going, yeah! Well, what, what are you so excited about? My sins are forgiven. I mean, they show more joy over the Mountain West Conference than you do in Christ. Are you blessing the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me? He wipes out all your iniquities. He heals your diseases. He redeems you from the life of the pit. Glory be to God that he rescued you and me from death and from condemnation. But not only that, and I'll finish as we go to the Lord's table. He says there who crowns you here in the ESV with steadfast love and mercy. That's amazing. In other words, not only does he redeem you, but he crowns you. The thought is with loving kindness or steadfast love and mercy, or even compassion. God Almighty not only redeems you, but he gives you the opposite of what you deserve. You and I deserved wrath, and he gives you grace. You deserved hell, and he crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Can you believe that? He makes you a trophy of his grace, according to Ephesians 2, 7 that for all of the ages to come, you're not going to say we won the Mountain West Conference. In all of the ages to come, according to Ephesians 2, 7, you will be his trophy. And it won't be on what you did. You will be a trophy of his, what? Grace. And he will get all the glory because all of it will come true at the end. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, the Lord does nothing halfway. He not only pardons, heals, and redeems, he now crowns you with an incorruptible crown. He exchanges your rags for his riches, your doom for his joy, your corruption for his compassion, and he crowns you with grace. He crowns you with loving kindness and mercy. Praise God. Listen, I say to you, forget none of his benefits. And then look finally, he satisfies you Verse 5, with good, so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. Some of you may come in and say, Pastor, I'm tired. But listen, bless the Lord. He will, not just now, but in the future, satisfy you with good, so that your youth is, kind of, is renewed like an eagle. And it's just using that expression there of a symbol of vigor, if you will, and freedom that comes from God's divine grace. And the believer strengthened by Christ, even in old age, the thought is, will soar like an eagle. I'm thinking, you know the scripture in Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new what? Strength. That's a promise to you. You say, I don't feel that way right now this morning. Wait for the Lord. You'll gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get, what, tired. They will walk and not become, what, weary. Listen, he's going to renew you. He's blessed the Lord. David says, oh, my soul. 